and welcome to the Presto Music Podcast. Those that have been following the podcast from the beginning will know that one of the most intriguing and interesting shows last year was the Scandinavian sojourn we took with critic and broadcaster Andrew Meller, a journey that began where Andrew lives in Copenhagen with the Danish composer Carl Nielsen. So we thought it would be a great idea to invite Andrew back to take a closer look at the life and music of one of classical music's most idiosyncratic figures, which he has very kindly agreed to do. Welcome back, Andrew. What have you been up to since we spoke around this time last year? Thanks, Paul. Um, good to be back. Um, uh, in a sense, not a lot, <laughs> like everybody else. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, um, it's been a busy year, thankfully. And, uh, you know, our concert life here in Copenhagen is up and running with a vengeance. So that's been good. And um, obviously, I've had some fantastic podcasts from you to listen to as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. What was it that drew you and continues to draw you to the music of Carl Nielsen? And was it the love of Nielsen that drew you to Denmark or vice versa? Well, I think it was the prospect of a better life that drew me to Denmark. <laughs> Maybe Carl Nielsen was a small part of it. And actually, I moved in 2015, which was the 150th um, anniversary of Carl Nielsen's birth, of course, as well as Sibelius's. Um, so that perhaps pushed me a little bit over the edge as well. I think I actually approached... Nielsen through Sibelius which is probably a mistake I think a lot of people tend to do that and so that's why it took me kind of a while to warm to him um once you sort of get Sibelius out of your head and think of Nielsen as a completely different entity musically then um I think it's sort of slightly easier so I I was just captured eventually by this energizing effect of his music this very sort of physical energy that I think you um you get from Nielsen's music and then you know the more I dug in uh, the more I found him a fascinating figure, his life as well as his music. Can you briefly describe Carl Nielsen's early life and personality, a personality which seems remarkably well expressed in his Opus 1 Little Suite for Strings, quite possibly the most characterful Opus 1 I think I've ever heard? Yeah, I, I agree. And, and um, you know, Nielsen was, in a sense, his his upbringing, his childhood is is kind of vital for his whole career, his whole life. He was born in this um, very poor family, one of, I think, seven children or something, a similar figure, um, on the island of Fun, uh, Funen, as we call it in English, um, a place with a sort of very distinctive landscape. He played in a band with his father, a kind of travelling wedding band, um, he played the fiddle and um, there's a great story in which he improvised a solo once uninvited and uh, apparently the look on his father's face told him that he shouldn't try that again anytime soon um, so and then he moved from that band to play in the local barracks band where he played the bugle and the alto trombone so he was really a composer sort of absolutely raised in the folk music tradition you know unlike Grieg and Sibelius who had to sort of come at that tradition through their own education um so a, a real folk musician and an ordinary guy a poor child who um you know who for, for whom the local community had to sort of whip round money to send him to audition at the royal danish academy of music and that's where he ended up and that's where he wrote this um opus one um suite for strings and you know he, he kind of he had a good relationship with uh, Niels Gehr, the Danish composer who was head of the academy. Um, he liked Gehr, Gehr liked Nielsen, but at the same time, you know, Gehr really couldn't stomach this music that Nielsen was writing and, and dismissed it as too messy. And that was really the kind of start of Nielsen's journey on his own. You know, he wanted to completely reinvent the way Scandinavian music sounded and move it away from the German school, which Gehr had been associated with. Um, so yeah, you have this fantastic um, uh, middle movement. I think this is the movement we're going to hear, isn't it? Which is a kind of tongue-in-cheek waltz. Uh, and I think even here you can sense Nielsen's kind of personality emerging. And here it's performed by the Sinfonietta Riga, conducted by Klaus Efland.
characterfulness and humanity of his writing is here in his Opus 1. And it's something that stayed with Nielsen through his entire career, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, you know, we're, we don't have time, unfortunately, to play his symphonies 1 and 2. But, um, of course, you know, four or five years after that suite came Nielsen's first symphony, which radically changed the, the kind of idea of the symphony for, 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 for um, not just Scandinavia, but Europe. You know, the first symphony with progressive tonality. Um, it was a piece that begins in the wrong key. You know, um, every movement kind of well, has this kind of this sense of chaos at the beginning, like all the first whole Nielsen's first four symphonies all have this sense of chaos that they open with and really a kind of common man's view of the world described as a, a like a child playing with dynamite by one of the <laughs> Copenhagen grids I, th- I think he meant it as a compliment you know like um just sort of originality the fact that it was so changeable and so engaging so I mean I I, I we we're not hearing the first symphony but we are hearing um, this violin sonata which I think I thought I wanted to include it because we don't often hear Nielsen's chamber music and there's some fantastic chamber music from Nielsen and this sonata which I think was a year after the symphony 1895 opens again with this sense of just extreme individuality and uh, you know this breathlessness this this disruption Um, and yeah I think we're going to hear a bit from the first movement but you Paul hear it slightly differently to me, I think, don't you? Yeah, well, I tend to hear it as quite highly enjoyable, but quite archetypal late romantic sonata. Can you address what qualities were seen as avant-garde at the time? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I'm not sure it was, you know, it's easy to see it as avant-garde in retrospect, (laughs) which I do. I mean, you have this violin line that doesn't, you just, you know, you think, where on earth is that going from the moment it starts? And then you have a piano accompaniment, which can seem more in some performances than others, which can seem totally unrelated to that violin line. And I think about, you know, the late Beethoven quartets where he plays these games with meter. So you don't quite know what, what meter the music's in, you know, and sometimes half of the music's in one meter and half of it's in the other, divided into instrumentally. And so I think you get that here. So it's a subtle, but sort of to me quite fascinating, um, view of that kind of his strange take Nielsen's very strange take on the legacy of uh, Brahms Beethoven and this very fresh faced kind of spiky haired approach yeah listen to the violin melody listen to the um, piano accompaniment and see if you can try and reconcile them because in a wonderful way I can't and we can listen to it performed by John Gesmer and Jens Elvikier Was Nielsen seen as a bit of an enfant terrible in Danish musical circles? Well, it's funny because there's there's actually a Danish musicologist um, who has uh, written a lot about this. Nielsen's kind of seen very much one way inside Denmark and another way outside of Denmark. So I don't think he was seen as an, as an enfant terrible as much as an original who kind of the country was quite willing to get behind you know that Denmark was in a period of real transition when Nielsen was was maturing it, it kind of lost more than half of its landmass all of its colonies it had to kind of rebuild from from within and Nielsen's idea of musical simplicity of you know basing his music on quite simple ingredients kind of I think struck a chord with with um people inside Denmark. I mean, obviously they got to know his songs, his popular songs a lot more than they did his more avant-garde symphonies. But still, I think he was seen as an original, but not so much as an enfant terrible. He was certainly seen as a, as a kind of country boy made good. 
And, you know, they loved that. The Danes loved that. They had it in Hans Christian Andersen. They felt guilty about Hans Christian Andersen having been treated so badly. So when Nielsen came along from the same place as Andersen, from the same island, um, I think they felt, here's someone we should kind of get behind. And they did get behind him. Isn't this part of this idea of sort of Denmark reinventing itself? As you said, in 1864, which was the year before Nielsen was born, they lost this war against Prussia very badly, as you said, lost half their territory. So it's a country trying to searching for a new expression of itself, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, they had this phrase, what, what, what was lost on the outside shall be gained on the inside. And that, you could argue, lies behind the whole Danish interior design trend that we, that's kind of come to fruition in the 20th century and 21st century. The whole idea of, you know, beauty in, in simple things. Um, you might as well have a coffee jug that's as beautiful as a marble sculpture. Um, that, that all, I think you can say that all very much came from 1864. Well, when we spoke last, you agreed that the third symphony was the most Danish of his symphonies. How does it reflect changing Danish society in the early 20th century? Well, I think one of the interesting things about this symphony is that many people would have moved, many people were moving from the country to the city uh, round about the turn of the 20th century. You know, Denmark, the industrial revolution was a little bit later than it was in um, Britain, further south in Europe. So um, Nielsen himself had made that journey. And for me, this symphony is kind of emblematic of the two sides of his personality, the kind of country bumpkin and the city sophisticate you know the kind of he was kind of forced to adopt this role of the part of the elite i suppose in copenhagen and yet he never ever lost sight of his roots and his music certainly didn't lose sight of his roots so i mean quite apart from the fact that you have this in the last movement you have this very broad tune um which is kind of speaks to me very obviously of the the landscape of foon and the horizon the, the kind of rolling hills uh, the hard work of the farmer and the, the plough. Um, you also have, um, and you, of course, in the, in the slow moving, you also have these two voices picking out a wordless melody, which is, again, sense of you know, the open expanse of the landscape in Funen. But in the first movement, which is, is the movement we're going to hear from, you have this, this, um, this kind of theme like, that's very reminiscent of the Eroica, Beethoven's Eroica, the triad. Um, that kind of crashes into a kind of urban waltz, like a um, kind of sophisticated posh waltz. And, and there's a kind of wonderful moment of rupture. And it, it seems to me very much a picture of Nielsen, the country lad, coming to terms, or not coming to terms, actually, with Nielsen, the sort of uh, urban dweller who all the kind of um, city dwellers looked up to. And that's a journey that many of his contemporaries were making at the same time, of course. Yeah, it was precisely. And actually, you know, they would have arrived in Copenhagen at this central station, which is the, 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 the building that stands today, Copenhagen Central, which opened in 1911, the year Nielsen was, was writing this symphony. And you know, there are many parallels. It has a, a, a very intricate wooden roof, like an upturned Viking ship, very much kind of new natural materials. It's plain, functional. It speaks of hard work, bricks, wood. And you can hear all those things, I think, in the Third Symphony. Yeah, well, let's hear it performed by the Royal Danish Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. I've always felt that throughout his oeuvre, Nielsen has, has a unique and distinct sonority. Do you agree? And what is it you, do you think that gives it this quality? Yeah, I definitely agree. It's hard to pinpoint. I mean, we just heard the triad there in the Third Symphony. He does often build his music on quite simple ingredients purposefully, you know, like the simplicity of song, the vigour of the dance, 
And even in a piece like the Fifth Symphony, where you know, which is sort of seen as very avant-garde, the base materials are quite simple. Um, Bernstein, who conducted uh, that performance and, and came to Copenhagen and conducted Nielsen's pieces, was very keen on the kind of unpredictability of the composer. Like, um, what did he refer to it as? Uh, Nielsen's constant unpredictability. Uh, that's something that the idea of uh, kind of impoliteness, of of um, bump and grind and of kind of rural directness um, and also you know this very sophisticated counterpoint that sometimes makes an appearance but is never you know too in your face I think um, of, of all things I would associate with him as well as just a really great view of you know history he played as a violinist so many so much music he knew his music I think well, a genre we haven't managed to fit an excerpt from is his songs. Can you explain the continued importance of Nielsen's songs within Denmark? And why has this marked him as a truly national composer? As you said, someone whose music is known even to those who are infrequent visitors to the concert hall or opera house. Yeah, Nielsen was part of a, a few people who were responsible for creating this kind of songbook. It's called uh, the Folkehøjskolens Melodibok, like a, a kind of compendium of songs that are sung in in um in high schools in Denmark still are and that this book is constantly discussed in the media still because it's just had a new edition out and you know often people are asking should it include um songs with kind of Arabic text should it include songs from outside the Danish tradition that sort of thing but Nielsen was one of the people who compiled it and he contributed hundreds of songs to it too so and many of his songs are just known as almost like Danish folk songs although he wrote them from scratch I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say the vast majority of Danes will know one or two of these songs, probably five or six of them, despite professing to not know any Carl Nielsen. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, they, you know, often simple themes. The most famous Jens Weiermann, Jens the road mender, about a guy who, you know, the guy who <laughs> mended the, the streets. And um, they're charming. Some of them are uh, uh, more towards kind of leader and, and a little more, have a little more substance. And some are just kind of very charming, simple song. And, you know, you can hear this, the melodies. I think the melody from Jens Weiermann the end of the roadmender some musicologists have believe it crops up in the fifth symphony you know absolutely his most sophisticated score so he didn't want necessarily to see too much of a divide between those two entities i gather there's a list of great danish cultural artifacts music wise there's two pieces by nielsen and also the folk collection there's also pieces by nielsen is there he crosses both those worlds uh, in danish culture yeah, he does very much. But of course, the, the, that, that collection, the, the, the cultural canon, as they call it, <laughs> it canon. this is never out of the news either. I mean, the, the, a new culture minister comes along and they say, <laughs> oh, we're going to look at the cultural canon again. And, you know, and everyone's talking, debating about Carl Nielsen and the other songwriters. I mean, yeah, it goes on and on. Well, Denmark is fortunate that it has a national opera with Nielsen's Masquerada. Is that status primarily due to its music, characters, plot, or a combination of the three? I think it's definitely a combination of those things. But I mean, it, the plot helps, you know, because <laughs> it's a very, a very Danish story about, um, the, you know, the new generation coming along to replace the old generation and, and kind of modernity, I suppose. Like the fundamental story is a group of young people who want to party and the older <laughs> people in Copenhagen thinking that they're making too much of a noise. And so you know, trying to cancel the party. And you can see this just happening every summer in Copenhagen years still. <laughs> and there's a great line in the opera about, um, you know, what else should we do living in a country where the sun shines only once a year? Uh, yeah. And, you know, when the sun comes out, Copenhageners really do go wild. And uh, I see that very much represented in in, uh, in uh, Masquerera. But, uh, the, you know, the, the other thing is that it's, it's, you know, it's almost an operetta in some ways. And Nielsen had played Falstaff, the premiere, the Danish premiere of Falstaff when he was in the opera orchestra. I definitely think there are parallels with Falstaff. The plot's written by Holberg, for that's from Grieg's Holberg Suite. That's right, yeah. I think it was probably, it was over 100 years old, wasn't it, when uh, Nielsen um, took it up and, and set it as an opera. And Holberg was associated with the Royal Theatre where Nielsen played the violin and was later a conductor. And, um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of woven into the DNA, into the cultural DNA, like you were saying about the culture canon. People know the plot and people know the kind of main aria that, that's, um, the Euronymous sings, which is a sort of, uh, 
picture of a fusty old man trying to preserve uh, you know <laughs> traditions that never really existed um and that's the kind of he sings that and then gets knocked off his perch by the youngsters straight afterwards fantastic well something we touched on last time was the dichotomy between scandinavian art and its people are the danes quite happy keeping their national opera a comedy to themselves oh that's a good question you know i I'm, i've been thinking a lot about this um I, I've just written a book, I think last time we spoke, you were, I was telling you about it, about trying to get to the bottom of this idea of, you know, Nordic identity in music. And the Danes absolutely love it when one of their own kind of people makes a success abroad, you know, like Caspar Holton or someone like that, or Caspar or Schmeichel for that matter. Um, <laughs> but they kind of are very confused about success in their own country and how to sort of deal with it because you're not supposed to be seen as anything, you know... Um, kind of special and i think uh that that they kind of um they find it rather rather uh um charming you know when masqueraders <laughs> performed abroad it was done at Covent garden i think wasn't it in 2006 or something and um i think the, the british sort of were a little bit nonplussed by it but i mean <laughs> i think maybe this is an example of an opera that perhaps doesn't travel so well and uh and and certainly if you think of it as a pantomime, you know, that's done at Christmas. It's not exclusively done at Christmas, but it's, since I moved to Copenhagen, it seems to have been done at Christmas. And it's sort of a, a traditional kind of pantomime style piece. And here's the finale of Act One of Masquerada, performed by soloists and the Danish National Symphony Orchestra and Choir, conducted by Michael Schoenwandt. <laughs> Well, the second symphony that you've picked from is his Fifth Symphony. Now, Denmark watched from the sidelines the horrors of the First World War. Is the Fifth Symphony a rare chance to see a European, but yet at the same time, outsider's perspective on the conflict? Yes, I mean, it was about the war, but it was also kind of bigger than that, because it, I think Nielsen's, he saw the, maybe the, the, the conflict in southern, further south in Europe as a metaphor for bigger things, you know, humanity's sort of struggle, moral struggle. He was also having his own serious problems at the time. His marriage was collapsing. He was kind of ostracized from Copenhagen. He was spending a lot of time in Gothenburg where he felt, you know, he felt people understood him. But actually, in reality, it was probably that people didn't know that he'd had all sorts of affairs and, and uh, illegitimate children. So, yes, it, it, to some extent, it, it was it was about um, looking looking from afar at events further south in Europe. But I think, I think also it was a bit... Um, more broad and also more close to home. Uh, when we think of Sibelius, for example, you know, the fourth symphony, he was, Sibelius was very keen to sort of pick up on expressionistic musical trends from Europe that he was hearing. We often think of that symphony as all about, you know, his own moment of bleakness, but um, he was definitely trying to do things musically as well. And I think the same is true of uh, Nielsen's fifth. A lot of it was just how can I advance this idea of symphonic design, this idea of um, symphonic energy. You know, the first four symphonies, we have this tremendous sense of energy and they're kind of let, in the first three, they're let, they're let off to sort of fly free. And then in the fourth and fifth, they, they, they come up, they encounter this kind of overwhelming negative force. Um, and perhaps you could say in the fifth, they don't quite um, prevail. You know, there's this sense of a, a bit like the pandemic you know that there's always a little bit of the the kind of darkness left the weeds are still growing in between the cracks even at the end of the symphony so yeah and and you know it has this amazing um expressionistic uh 
snare drum solo, which in, in purely in musical terms was fascinating, you know, to have a, uh, to instruct a, a musician to sort of improvise and do anything possible in order to make a sort of the desired sound was pretty radical at the time. And we can sample that now performed by the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Alan Gilbert. Now, the prominent use of a snare drum in Nielsen's music isn't unique to the Fifth Symphony. Do you feel there's something particular about this instrument that appealed to Nielsen? Is the disruptive element of it a representation of his own character or what he wanted to achieve, perhaps? Yeah, definitely. I, I, think, I, couldn't, I think that's absolutely right. And um, we should also consider that, you know, when he was playing in that barracks band, Nielsen wrote in his memoirs about the sound of this army barracks um, band, you know, the, the cacophony it made, the drums, the, the brass instruments, something about like a foaming sea full of monsters writhing around. And uh, he loved that. And, and that's definitely stayed with him. And, um, and I think, you know, there must have been drums in that band. And um, I think he just relished the idea that there could be a troll in the orchestra, you know, that could kind of get at other instruments and get at other elements of the musical conversation um it can't be drowned out exactly he's, go he's going to be the loudest voice yeah and, and and you know it was in a sense him you know because he, he was he was sort of this cheeky presence all his life and he never really wanted to sort of um conform and uh, perhaps i think he always felt like that like the poor kid from funan and um maybe you know this was his way of you know kind of enacting his revenge on polite society. <laughs> well, I listened to this symphony again, obviously in preparation for the show, and I was actually struck, actually this time around, by its modernism, yet it's never at the expense of the music's humanity. Is this perhaps Nielsen's greatest achievement musically, is that he was able to marry this musical modernism with his own outgoing character and personality? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, he, I think he always wanted to be honest and I think he was very conscious of not repeating himself and also of, you know, trying to develop his language wherever he could and find new ways of expressing his fundamental worldview, which was this, you know, the life force and the human spirit um, versus, you know, negative forces, whether that be death or kind of moral corruption or whatever. It's funny because I think a lot of people still find Nielsen's music quite difficult, you know, and... Um, so I, I would I would hesitate to say that um, he kind of managed to manifest those things in music that's kind of very easy because a lot of the time it's not very easy and even the fifth symphony can be quite difficult to listen to. I think the sixth symphony maybe is even easier if you if it's, it's you know it's an easier symphony to experience if you don't know anything about the symphony. Sometimes you know people like you and me we kind of listen with this weight of you know knowledge about what the symphony should be and you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure. I mean, I think maybe I'm too close to him <laughs> to, yeah. to know the answer to that. But I mean, I certainly think so. And I think it's some of his, some of his most beautiful, simple music. You just feel absolute honesty and the kind of innovation wears itself. Is, he wears it very lightly. Well, as we said, Nielsen was very successful in Denmark. But was his success a sort of irritation for some of the perhaps more avant-garde colleagues? In Danish composition, in particular, one Ruid Longord. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ruid Ru Longord. This guy really hated Nielsen, and um, <laughs> I, I mean, 
it's fu- it's funny. I mean, it's it's funny, but I mean, it had its tragic um, side to it as well. But um, I mean, you know, Danish the Danish kind of culture life kind of latched onto Nielsen, like I was saying earlier, and um, he became a kind of emblem. Uh, meanwhile, Hulangor, um was um, was a composer who was a you know in a sense much more traditional actually like he was much more of a romantic at heart and he he just couldn't accept that you know the kind of musical language had moved on and Nielsen advocated for this more austere contrapuntal simple style and Langor was very much a kind of mystic and Langor was treated very badly in Denmark partly because he was seen as out of fashion but also because you know he was the absolute opposite to Nielsen. He came from privilege. He had these kind of slightly Germanic aristocratic um, links you know, that didn't really do him any favours at the time. And the more success Nielsen had, the more bitter and angry Langor became. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, Langor, in the end, he, he did you know, create some really visionary masterpieces. You know, he kind of, he foreshadowed Ligeti and um, his language just shot off in all sorts of amazing directions. But but he did also um, write these eccentric pieces, like the one we're going to hear, um, in which he just he just let loose and, and <laughs> about about what he felt about Carl Nielsen. And this piece, um, which obviously wasn't revo- wasn't performed until I think the kind of nineteen eighties nineteen nineties, when 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 Denmark took a whole a good look at all of Langor's works and decided to give them fair dues. He simply has a choir sing one phrase. Carl uh, Nielsen for a store combinist. Carl Nielsen, our great composer, over and over, getting louder and louder. And I think the score says uh, at the end it says to be sung um, for all eternity. And, and, and you know, I mean, he obviously wasn't gifted with a great subtle approach to to to, to irony, but still, it's it's fascinating to hear. So I think we hear a bit, but I mean, you can imagine, you just have to imagine it going on and yeah, on and on and on. We're not, we're not going to listen for all eternity, but you can sample what we could sample of. Carl Nielsen, our great composer by Ruud Longord. This is performed by the Danish National Radio Symphony Orchestra and Court Choir, conducted by Gennady Rosdesvensky. Not exactly the most subtle work of art, is it, Andrew? Certainly not, no. But I mean, <laughs> it, it's just amazing to, to think that, that, that he was so frustrated that he sat down and wrote this, you know? <laughs> like, and, and, and I, 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 a few years ago, I did some research into Hulangor and, and I, was, I, I was very interested to see what, you know, to hear about Nielsen's reaction to him. And I think Nielsen just didn't really, no one really knew of his existence for a lot of the time. <laughs> It's kind of like, oh, oh no, that that's guy. the worst, isn't it? Yeah, 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 like whatever. Oh, he's done another piece. Okay, whatever. Um, it must have been very uh, tough for him. Well, Nielsen's opera, Saul and David, is one of Nielsen's most accomplished scores, but it's probably fair to say that the piece has never really taken off in Denmark or abroad. Is this perhaps because it's too Wagnerian to be accepted as authentically Danish, but not Wagnerian enough? Yeah, it's, it's certainly not Wagnerian enough. I mean, I think Nielsen was, was at the time you know starting to really uh dislike the whole wagner project and and trying to sort of move um away from what he called the the gravy and grease of german music <laughs> but but also he was in this kind of lyrical phrase pre the third symphony um and uh i mean the saul and david i mean it has its problems you know the plot um it's quite sort of congested and uh and uh, but I just think it has some wonderful music in, like you said, and 
and we got to hear it um, in 2015 on the anniversary and um, I hear rumblings of a new recording um, perhaps from the UK but you know I don't know um, whether that will come to fruition but it has some wonderfully innovative moments like the opening chorus I've always found very striking but it, the bit we're going to hear which is the prelude to act two isn't it I think um, is it's a bit it's a piece that's plucked out and played a lot in concert and also used to test uh, conductors it just has this wonderful um, uh, lyricism and shows his contrapuntal skill, his orchestration, uh, the way he can write a fantastic counter melody and create these moments of rupture. And, and it's just so bracing, so wonderfully energetic and bracing. I love it. And it's performed here by the Danish National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Thomas Dauskord. When I was listening to this, I found that the most distinct passages were actually those orchestral-only pieces. I did find that the vocal writing often does sound a bit Meistersingerish. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, I think uh, Nielsen was perhaps yet to master his, his, his treatment of the Danish language in an operatic context. You know, like Mascarella is very quick and linguistic. And um, uh, Saul and David is a little more, yeah, exactly as you say, uh, maybe unconsciously Wagnerian, actually. I mean, he played the Meistersinger in, in the um, pit of the, of the Royal Opera. Um, but um, and yeah, I don't think he could help but be influenced by it, perhaps. Well, on the Presto podcast about Handel, we discussed the affiliation that Britain had with the Israelites in Handel's oratorios. Is there something similar going on here with Denmark's relationship to, to Germany and perhaps Nielsen's relationship to Wagner? Is Nielsen seeing himself as the David versus Wagner's Goliath? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I think maybe it goes back to, to Nielsen's. I mean, you know, you have to remember that throughout the sort of 19th century, the kind of the whole of the Scandinavian music scene was kind of dominated by Germany. So everyone went down to Leipzig. They either went to Copenhagen or they went to Leipzig. You know, Grieg went to Leipzig. Niels Gehrer went to Leipzig, ran the, ran the um, Gewandhaus, then came back. So Copenhagen then almost became an extension of Leipzig. And Nielsen just wanted something of his own, something of, for Denmark to have something of its own, just like Grieg. And, you know, it's fascinating how they both subtly tweaked, well, I suppose Grieg subtly tweaked what he learned from the German school and created this very distinct, fresh Norwegian language. And Nielsen, I suppose, went more fundamentally for, you know, structure. He wanted shorter phrases. He wanted more abrupt um, rhythms. He wanted more kind of grinding harmonies. And that was his way of, you know, his sort of bid for musical separatism, I suppose. And I think, you know, Denmark needed it. As you were saying about 1864, this was a time when Denmark just needed to stand on its own two feet. And, you know, it went, this rumbled on into the 20th century when um, there was more disputes about um, uh, the land, uh, Schleswig-Holstein, uh, and of course the, the, the wars when, when, when Denmark was in the Second World War occupied by um, Germany. I mean, Denmark, Nielsen was long dead at that point, but still it was, it's become a way of, um, of, of looking at Nielsen and, and celebrating what he did. Just last year, uh, Schleswig-Holstein celebrated its centenary of being bits of it being back in Danish hands. And um, there was lots of performances of the, the music that Carl Nielsen actually wrote in 1920 to, to mark that occasion. Um, so yeah, it is different and it sounds different and it, you know it's linguistically different. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps we find it as English speakers difficult to grasp at first. Yeah, and it is connected to the Danish language, that setting of it. It has to be specifically tailored to the very different language that is between Danish and German. 
Yes, I think so. You know, the, the, the Danish sits at the back of the throat. And it, it sounds like well, the Norwegians say that Danes speak as though they've got a throat full of potatoes. And um, <laughs> it's got a very distinct sound. To me, a very uh, sort of... Um, sort of harsh staccato sound in some ways. You know, the, 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 it's a language that's fantastic to be angry in. It's insults and curses and, and you know, things you shout out of the car window. They sound a lot better in <laughs> Danish than in any other language. And I've always thought the, big, the, the opening of the fourth symphony, the opening of the third symphony, the opening of the first symphony, it just sounds linguistically very Danish to me. Well, Nielsen wrote three concertos for violin, flute and for clarinet. Now, the clarinetist for whom Nielsen wrote the piece was called irascible but warm at heart. Is this a pretty good description of the concerto itself? Yes, I think it is. Uh, 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 Nielsen's these late concertos, the flute and uh, clarinet concerto and the bassoon concerto that never came to fruition, were designed for Nielsen's ex-colleagues in the Royal Danish Orchestra, um, who also played in this wind quintet that Nielsen wrote his famous wind quintet for. Uh, like I said, you know, he, he never wanted to repeat himself. He always wanted to develop his musical kind of voice. And later on in his career, he had this idea that in order to write for an instrument, you had to kind of creep inside that instrument and kind of, you know, get inside its character, stereotype, what we probably would think of now, you know, instrumental stereotypes. But this guy, uh, Orga Oxenthal, who was the clarinetist in the Royal Danish Orchestra, was... Um, yeah, just a real character, irascible, and um, a guy, Robert Simpson, described him as full of personal subjective problems. Uh, <laughs> Are know, we who, all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows what that means, but, you know, I, I, yeah. I imagine a guy who was um, fun to be around in the evening, maybe not so much fun to be around the next morning. Good morning. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned there the wind quintet. He's certainly such an idiomatic writer for wind instruments, isn't he, Carl Nielsen? Yes, he is, and he really wanted to sort of like you know he, he's, the flute for him was this kind of forest bound you know like fawn like instrument. The clarinet was a was a sort of um, for, you know a, a sort of screeching tram or a lyrical um, you know kind of bird. He very much went for these specific characteristics. Well, let's sample the clarinet concerto performed by Blaz Sparavets, the Odent Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anna Skrileva. does go back to that idea that Nielsen is really a master of musical character isn't he whether that's his or someone else's yes I think so and, and um, you know he, he, he really um, wanted to, to do something different in that piece and the flute concerto and there's a hint of atonality in there um, there's also that you know that very kind of we didn't hear it there but the concerto opens with this very sort of bumpkin like theme you know you can imagine Nielsen, Nielsen, the kid wandering through Unser with his little trumpet slung over his shoulder, very kind of ordinary. And then we talked about the snare drum that acts as a kind of troll towards the clarinet all the way through, the confrontation of it, the fact that, it, you know, in 1928, this would have sounded like very modernist music. And there was a terrible review, wasn't there, that someone wrote in Sweden, absolutely the worst thing that this too obviously experimental and provocatively sidestepping Dane has yet written. And uh, is there a bit of jealousy there from a Swede? Well, I think, first of all, like the Swedes have always been more conservative and, and Nielsen would have loved that, you know. Like, <laughs> to upset a Swede would have been a real badge of honour to him. But I also, <laughs> I do, uh, there's also the sense that, you know, to, to upset any critic would have been pretty good going for him because he never wanted to sort of become part of the establishment. And... Um, you know what? If as long as what he did had integrity and wasn't provoking for its own sake, 
and was rooted in what you described as character, I think he was very happy um, to sort of stand by it. Well, Andrew's final pick is Nielsen's Sixth Symphony, his last. Now, if Stravinsky deconstructed classical music's rhythmic language and Schoenberg deconstructed its harmonic, perhaps Nielsen, with his Sixth Symphony, again, striking his own path, wanted to take on classical music's perceived sense of self-importance. Again, showing his character from those early photos and his music. Yeah, very much so. And um, I think that the older Nielsen got, you know, the, the more he kind of wanted to recapture his youth and his, his autobiography, My Childhood, um, my, min, min, is it Min Band on Pufun and My Childhood on Funen was actually um, written, I think, just before, you know, not long before he died. He spent a lot of time in his later years harking back to his early years and his sort of childlike self. And, and you certainly hear this in the symphony. I mean, you know, in the 1920s, he, was, he had a heart attack. He was ordered to rest. And instead of resting, he went skiing, um, had broke two ribs. And then just before he died, he was larking around at the back of the theatre for a revival of uh, Masquerade, actually, um, climbing up ropes with some of the stagehands, you know, which then killed him effectively. He went straight to hospital and, and died some days later. So he, he, he kind of never grew up, in a sense. And I think... Um, the last symphony is, um, I mean, you can read it as a joke. You can read it as a sort of uh, a fart in the face of mortality to that, <laughs> that final bassoon note. But also, you know, there's something quite serious about it when we think about his, his Nielsen's view of the life force and the, the life spirit. I, you know, there's, there's some very interesting writing on this from Daniel Grimley, the musicologist from Oxford, who talks about the kind of Darwinian qualities of the symphony. You know, instruments kind of emerge, they get into fights, and they either survive <laughs> or they don't survive, and then a, a new one comes along. And it's a very and the bassoon is the survival of the fittest. So the bassoon is the greatest, best instrument. <laughs> yeah, or maybe the bassoon, maybe the maybe the bassoon is you know you have to laugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because uh, otherwise you'd cry and I think in, right. in the end you know um, I, I guess you know what would he have been like to, to have around you know when we when you talk about who which of the great composers would you like to meet I mean <laughs> no way would you have wanted to meet Wagner no way would you have wanted to meet like Beethoven but Nielsen you know he, he would have been fantastic fun to meet and I'm sure to have a few beers with and you know probably suffered from bipolar disorder he had he had some very kind of um severe challenges emotional challenges and, and and strange behavior but he would have been fun and he and he wouldn't have wanted to put you know to put you down as you know as a journalist when you're interviewing people and uh, you're always worried that you're going to make a fool of yourself I, I, I don't think you ever would have felt that with carl nielsen he would have you know put you at ease from the, from the he would have made him. a fool of himself before you had a chance to exactly yeah, unless you were, unless you were like, you know, idiotic towards him, which he would have taken you down pretty quickly. Or, or, or ruined Longord. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, imagine <laughs> those two together. I, I, I mean, I still don't know whether, you know, the circumstances under which they met and spoke are very um, hard to sort of read about. Um, but um, I would imagine Nielsen would have just been quite dismissive. <laughs> well, let's say the end of uh, Nielsen's Sixth Symphony. This is performed by the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic and conducted by Zachary Oromo. discuss some of the lasting impacts that Nielsen's has on Denmark, starting with the Nielsen competition. Yeah, the, the Nielsen competition, or competitions, perhaps I should say, they've really come into their own in the last decade or so. Uh, so we heard the winner of the last clarinet competition there, Blaz Barovec. Part of the prize is a recording to record um, the Nielsen concerto for the flute, the flautist and the um, clarinetist. There's this violin competition 
flute competition and clarinet competition. There's also an organ competition and a chamber music competition. So yeah, that, that's a significant legacy. And it's this city of Unser, where, which is um, the main city on Foon, where Nielsen was from, has sort of really taken him to its heart. And there's uh, a fantastic symphony orchestra there. Um, it's a good, a good place to go and kind of see, you know, the kind of place where Nielsen was from. I mean, Denmark is, it does a lot of hand-wringing about its past, you know, like uh, likes to kind of chew over past success and ask whether it was really valid and, you know, what was its standing in the world. But I think Nielsen's legacy beyond the songs that everybody knows has been a certain acceptance of, of, of you know, the avant-garde, this idea of simplicity in music, even if it ultimately builds to something complex is something that's very much present in Danish music. If you think about Per Nurk or Ben Sørensen, these are composers who, who like to work with simple ingredients and, and build them up into, into something, you know, which can be majestic, but is fundamentally quite, quite basic. The fight with Rulangor, I mean, Denmark feels a lot of shame about that. I think nowadays every composer gets, gets heard. Lots of young composers get, get recordings. There's room for everyone, and one could say perhaps that's a legacy of, the, of Rulangor being silenced. Perhaps not, I don't know. But most of all, I think there's still a feeling in Denmark that everyone should have a chance to be a success, you know, and everyone should have a crack at education. Things should be free. But Nielsen and Hans Christian Andersen have played a part in that. You know, these are kids who came from nothing and were given opportunity at a time when it wasn't guaranteed. And uh, now, thankfully, it is guaranteed. You can see that with Nielsen's dates, because as we've discussed, he was born just after this defeat to Prussia in 1864 and died just before the election of Denmark's first social democratic government in 1924. So, as you said, he's that transitional figure that helps sort of Denmark figure, figure out what it wanted to be in the future. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it would be very interesting to see how the next 150 years are for him. You know, there's, there's been a lot of Carl Nielsen played in Denmark recently, much more so than when I first moved here. And... Um, and the songs, you know, I wonder if, if people will still sing the songs in, in, a, in a century's time. I wonder how his symphonies will be viewed. Um, that will certainly be interesting to see. Well, it certainly will be very interesting. And you'll be there at the front line reporting for us on the developments of the Nielsen reputation in Denmark as we go forward, I'm sure. What are your other current plans? I hope I will. Yes. Uh, other current plans. Oh, can I plug my book? Is that allowed? Of course. Uh, that, will be, <laughs> that comes out in the spring. And well, we have a Nielsen cycle just getting going here in Copenhagen with Fabio Luisi and the Danish National Symphony, which will be released on Deutsche Grammophon next year. The first ever recording of the complete symphonies and concertos on Deutsche Grammophon. He, he's, he's made it to Deutsche Grammophon. The Germans have accepted him finally. Yeah. So that's something to, to, <laughs> to listen out for. Definitely. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Until next time. Pleasure. Until next time. Thank you, Paul. Thank you very much to my producer, Matt Groom, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>